Open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to, the Lord willing, we're going to wrap up the chapter this morning. This is the third of, of three parts, looking at the city of Ephesus, Paul's ministry there. And uh, last week we looked at uh, how Paul had been speaking boldly in the synagogue uh, there in Ephesus. He was reasoning with, persuading the people concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And initially he had favor with them. He went for about three months, which was kind of a record for Paul. <laughs> he was ministering at the synagogue. Uh, he was sort of getting accustomed to getting booted pretty quickly, but he went for about three months. Uh, and at that point, they became antagonistic towards him, and uh, they, they called that the, they began to get kind of worked up towards the Way, which was a, a name for the church in the first century. They, they were known as the Way. We talked about that, uh, and. So he and his disciples left the synagogue and they went to a place called the School of Tyrannus. Now it was there and we looked at extra biblical information, a fifth century deal that we talked about that that adds that not just going to the School of Tyrannus, but that he was there from about 11 in the morning till four in the afternoon. So uh, the middle of the day, and in, in, in a Mediterranean climate, that makes sense. We don't know that that was the case, but it makes sense that he would be there in the middle of the day when everybody else was taking a break. He'd be able to work in the morning, work in the evening, and teach through the day. So that's what he did. And he did that for about two years. And if you take that amount of hours times two years, that's a lot of teaching. <laughs> I'm tired after an hour. <laughs> but it's like... So he's there, and as a result, Christianity explodes over the province of Asia. I mean, this is a huge area. Asia Minor, I mean, it's not as big as the continent of Asia, which we've looked at, but it was Asia Minor, which means Little Asia, a province in the Roman Empire, and the word of God spread as he's equipping people, sending them out, planting churches, and and there was just a great move of God that was going on. Powerful ministry was taking place. So much so that they were even taking, well, I I picture Paul teaching at the school of Tyrannus and guys coming in and grabbing his sweatbands and his aprons that he used for work and hauling them out of there, taking them to the sick. And they were being healed. The demons were being cast out. I mean, it was a fantastic time uh, there in Ephesus as God's spirit was being poured out and as the church was being not just planted, but being enlarged. Uh, so during that time, there was a group of Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva. We read about them last week. They saw what was going on and they thought, aha, <laughs> kind of a brilliant idea. Uh, we're going to use the same incantation that Paul uses and we're going to start casting out demons in Jesus' name. Problem was they had no idea about the power behind the name because they didn't belong to Jesus. And things didn't go very well for them <laughs> as a result. So they, t- they, they attempted to deliver a guy that was demon-possessed. He ended up attacking them, all seven of them, and, and shredding them. He, it says that they left the house uh, naked and wounded. So I, you know, I, I, do you, you ever think about like the cartoon with the Tasmanian devil, and he just kind of goes, and then this guy must have just cut loose. Because every one of those guys, it was like, run for you. One of them probably said, run, and then they're all out of there, and they're running down the road. So 
And then they became aware, I don't have any clothes on. (laughs) Just uh, what a scene. So word of this, word of Paul's successes and their failures started to get out and it's traveling out. I mean, this is Ephesus is a huge city, 250 to 300,000 people. And word is getting out and people are seeing there's something to this. And it, it, we're told that, that the, <laughs> they begin to, to turn to Christ as a result of this. And this tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit begins. So we wrapped up last week with looking at the fruit of repentance. What happens when we turn from the old life, turn from the old ways and embrace Christ and what was going on there is they were, they began to, to con, they were coming under conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I need to get rid of this old life. I need to walk away from it. I need to confess my sins. And we're told there in the text that they, they began to confess their evil deeds. And then not only that, but they gathered up all of the paraphernalia. They, they gathered up their books and their scrolls and parchments, whatever else they had. And they took them to a common place and burned them. And they looked at the value of what was going on there. I mean, there, it, it was literally, in today's currency, probably millions of dollars worth of stuff. Uh, again, people put their money where their mouth was. So as, we, as a result of all of that, we wrapped up with verse 20 in Acts 19 last week. Uh, it says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I love that. So in all of this, this great work of God had begun to spread. Uh, it was not just in Ephesus, but throughout the entire region of Asia. Picking it up this morning in Acts 19.21, we read, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So we see here that, uh, I love the proverb where it says that we establish our plans, but the Lord orders our steps. So we see that Paul is establishing his plans. He could have no idea at this point that he would go to Rome, but that it would be a one-way trip and he would go in chains. So he wants to go back through Macedonia and Achaia. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. First, Uh, as we've seen in his previous missionary journeys, Paul was accustomed to going back and revisiting the churches that he had previously planted. He had, he was, yes, he had, he had a missionary spirit. Man, he couldn't, he was itching to go a lot. But he also had a pastor's heart. He also cared deeply for the people that he ministered to. He cared deeply for the churches that he had planted and he wanted to go back and to see how they were doing. The other thing about this, Luke doesn't mention it here, but another reason why Paul wanted to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then on to Jerusalem was that he wanted to receive and deliver an offering from the Gentile churches to help out the church in Jerusalem. The, the, the church in Jerusalem was under real heavy fire. Uh, they were hurting. They were struggling. And so... Uh, when I look at this, it, what God was doing in that as well, because God's always working ahead of us. Have you noticed that in your life? He's always working ahead. And, and so what God is doing in this, yeah, the, the church at Jerusalem is in trouble. They're, they're under persecution. They're hungry. I mean, they're, they have real need. God is using Gentile churches because that's what it is in Achaia and Macedonia. He's using Gentile churches to come to their aid. 
And so we see this ecumenical outreach going on. Now, if you understand what ecumenism is, and it means it's when we as churches come together. I mean, uh, I'm very good friends with some of the other pastors here in, in Newburgh uh, and in other areas because we share a common bond. What is that common bond? Christ and the gospel. So when it comes to ecumenism, if it centers around the gospel and biblical Christianity, I'm there. I'm all for it. However, uh, I'm going to not rabbit trail. We've got too much ground to cover. <laughs> when it's at the expense of the gospel, when it's at the expense of what God's word declares, the only thing to do with it. And I think that that's a healthy thing. It's not that all ecumenism is bad. Some of it is. Some of it is I don't want to be identified with certain groups. Uh, I'll tell you what, tacit approval is a real thing. I remember my wife and I were, uh, when we lived in California, our, church, our house was across the street uh, from a church that was planted or identified with Bethel Church out of Reading, which is, that's strange fire in my opinion. That's another gospel. And we went there and I told her when we were leaving, I said, we're not going back. And she said, what do you, how come? And I said, because I don't want to be identified. If people just see me there, I don't want to be identified with that. Again, ecumenism at the expense of the gospel, no thanks. Ecumenism for the gospel, we see here God working in the hearts and lives of these Gentile churches. There was strife between the Gentile church and the, and the Messianic Jewish church. Even between the Messianic Jews, there, there were the Hellenistic Jews and then there were the Jerusalem Jews. And, and they were already starting to fragment. And so God is doing this work. Not only is he meeting their needs, but he's bringing people together under the banner of Christ, which is always a good thing. So uh, near the end of this letter, uh, <laughs> interesting, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. As Paul is doing it, he's saying, look, I want to go to Macedonia and Achaia, and then I want to go to Rome. Well, later on, he would write back from Corinth, he would write back a letter to the church at Ephesus uh, and, and talk about that. He would also, while he was in Corinth, he would write a letter to the church at Rome. Now, what he would say to the church at Rome was that he wanted to visit them. However, there was a pressing need for the church in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, 25, and 26, he says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. That's, that's taking the offering. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Achaia to make certain, a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So we see then, and we're working ahead when we're looking at this, this is after he goes, because where he leaves, when he leaves here, he heads for Macedonia and Achaia and begins to carry out the work there. So, uh, again, we know that he would go to Rome. It wouldn't be the way that he envisioned that it would be, but that's what God had for him. So in the meantime, because the gospel has spread so rapidly throughout Ephesus, uh, also throughout the surrounding region of Asia, Paul wasn't ready yet to move on. So as a result of that, he's going to send an advanced team. Uh, I mean, we were doing Mexico outreaches for years uh, at the church I was a part of in California. And we would always send an advanced team to go down and to kind of lay the groundwork for the work that we were going to do so that we wouldn't have to double down our efforts once we got there. And in the same light, Paul, he's going to send a couple of guys ahead of him to Macedonia 
to, again, to lay the groundwork for when he goes and he begins to minister to the saints there. Uh, in verse 22, he says, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. Uh, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So now I've got a slide here. Uh, it shows Asia there on the right and then Macedonia and Achaia on the left. And that kind of gives you an idea how to locate this. So they're there uh, with the Aegean Sea in the middle, Mediterranean Sea, which the Aegean Sea is part of that, to the south of them. But I want you to notice that Ephesus is south of a city called Troas. Uh, we'll get to that uh, as we move through the book of Acts. We're not going to get there today. But that's where Paul and Silas and Timothy, on Paul's second missionary journey, that's where they ran into a guy by the name of Luke. And they took Luke with them when they crossed the Aegean Sea and went to Philippi in Macedonia. That's where they left Luke. <laughs> because, And we'll see when we get into chapter 20 that Luke starts saying they after they leave Philippi and he says they until they get back to Philippi and then they go to Troas and then he starts talking about we again because he's going to rejoin them. Anyway, from Ephesus, Timothy and Erastus, they would likely retrace Paul's second journey uh, through Troas. Uh, it would make sense because Macedonia being quite a bit to the north of Ephesus uh, and then they would head on into Philippi and then start to carry out the work from there. I think it's really interesting if you look at the map, it's worth noting that Paul would uh, go through Macedonia and Achaia. And when he got to Achaia on his third journey, he didn't stop at Athens. And remember on his second journey, he did. He, he, he kept getting run out of town, got ran out of town at Thessalonica, got run out of town at Berea, and then he went south to Athens. Remember, they smuggled him down there. But things didn't go well for him at Athens. He ended up being dismissed by the Areopagus there on Mars Hill. We looked at that in chapter 17. Uh, he got all the way up to talking about the resurrection. They went, okay, that's enough. I'm paraphrasing. They kind of went, that's enough. We've heard enough. Thank you very much. See you later, Paul. And there's no record of a church ever having been planted in Athens. He doesn't even go to Athens on his third journey. Now, if Timothy and Erastus had made it that far, they wouldn't have gone either because remember, Timothy was with Silas. They left, Paul left them in Berea on his second journey. He went to Athens by himself. So Timothy wouldn't even know anybody there. So I just think it's interesting as we look at this and as we retrace these guys' steps, to see sort of the troop movements as they're moving through these areas and why things happened the way that they did. So uh, meanwhile, in Ephesus, let me pick it back up there, verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Again, the name for the early church. Uh, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So uh, this guy Demetrius, is, he's a tradesman, he's a silversmith, and uh, they made these little trinkets <laughs> to Diana. We'll talk about that as we go. So Ephesus was the home to, I mentioned last week, to the temple of Diana, uh, it was known as one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful piece of architecture. Uh, the second slide I've got shows a replica. It's a scaled replica that you, that, uh, you can see off to the right. There's a, a person's head. So you see that it's very small compared to the real building. 
but this replica is located in Istanbul, Turkey, which back in later from that time would become Constantinople and all that, the capital. Ephesus is, of course, on the west coast of Turkey. So this temple in Ephesus, the temple of Diana, uh, was supported by, it had 127 60-foot high pillars. It was a big, big building. Now, another thing I want to talk about, too, is Diana. And you see here in the text, it talks about Diana. The Greek word is Artemis. And I think, well, how did they come up with Diana? That's kind of strange. But Diana is the Roman. We've looked at that in the Roman and Greek pantheons of gods. The, it was kind of interesting because the Romans would just sort of take the same gods and then they'd rename them. <laughs> and what they did was they renamed the Diana was the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. Uh, Artemis was an Olympian goddess of hunting and wild animals, uh, protectress of women and girls. And it was, there's some real interesting stuff that went on with Diana worship. I'm not going to go into all of it. Uh, this third slide shows a, a, an artist's rendering of what the temple would have looked like. But I've got an inset there that is a statue of Diana with her bow and uh, all of that, with a deer, a, a, with a hind. Uh, she's depicted in Greek mythology as a slender, beautiful, and seductive woman. Uh, since Artemis, or Diana of the Ephesians, was regarded as a fertility goddess, worship of Diana was a highly sexualized thing. So you've got to understand, at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, there were probably temple prostitutes, very much like we saw in Corinth. It was a thing in the Roman Empire uh, that would ply their trade every night. They would come down into the city. Now, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, uh, was destroyed in the year 262. It was destroyed on purpose by a guy that wanted to make a name for himself, (laughs) set it on fire, and it was lost. Uh, in history, it, it, there was no record of it. They couldn't. They didn't know where it was until 1869. Uh, then its main altar was excavated in 1965. So this fourth slide uh, shows all that remains today: one pillar <laughs> uh, of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And this is an actual photo of, of that location. I would love to. I was talking to somebody the other day. Love to be able to retrace the steps of Paul. Uh, through the Mediterranean world. Uh, what a rich... I have a, a dear friend, pastors of church in California, that has done all of that and uh, <laughs> highly recommend it. So something about this, though, we've talked about the, you know, the beautiful Greek goddess and all of that. Artis, Artemis of the Ephesians was different. They had, there was an event that took place in Ephesus that uh, sort of changed the way that they had they did their worship and changed the imagery and all of that. Uh, most believe that she, the, Ar- the Artemis of the Ephesians, originated from a meteor uh, that had fallen from the sky, and the people believed that Zeus had cast this image down. Uh, now, <laughs> the artisans of the day, they took this lumpy chunk of meteorite, and they carved it into a little black image of a woman with 30-something breasts on his chest. 
it, it's grotesque, really, truly. And, and I'm not going to show you a slide. There, <laughs> there, are, there are pictures, uh, you know, and images and all of that. And I just said, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> if you want to know, look it up on Google. Um, but they enshrined this thing. Uh, and in their minds, this mythical woman with these multiple breasts was Artemis. And so what happened was the silversmiths would take and make these graven images, these little pocket-sized idols out of silver, and they would sell them to the people. And the people then would take them to the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, get them blessed by the creepy priests there. And then they would take them home and incorporate them into their pagan worship. That was how they did it. Uh, now remember, Ephesus is it's a center for dark, dark, dark worship, dark arts, cultic worship. Uh, and the trinkets and the idols that they made there were evidently a substantial trade. This was big business. So in verse 25, he, Demetrius, he called them together. And this is the other craftsman. Uh, the, with the workers of similar, similar occupation and said, men, you know that we've our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying they are not gods, which are made with hands. No kidding. <laughs> so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Boy, he is pouring it on. <laughs> There's a couple of things going on here. First, it's obvious. It's not about Diana. This is all about the money. And these guys, they're seeing, <laughs> they're seeing their profits go out the window. Because the gospel had gone out to so many people and the word of God had just uh, spread like wildfire throughout the whole province. These guys were seeing their business start to drop off. <laughs> if they traded on the market, their stock would be, <laughs> it would be just ticking lower every day. Uh, obviously, it wasn't a stock market at that time. And uh, <laughs> I feel really good about the stock market because I don't own any stocks. But... Um, <laughs> At any rate, for these guys, the more people turn to Christ, the more their business was hurt. And that's what this is about. Second thing we see here uh, in verse 27 is it's a great example of a false narrative. And they're putting this forth to cover up what's really going on. And folks, it doesn't, you spend five minutes on your computer or with a reliable, <laughs> I use the term loosely, news source, and there is a lot of false narratives being peddled out there. Uh, so often it is, and it's just what God's word says, this is calling what is evil good and what is good evil. And then it's like, we've got this whole thing over here. We want to cover that up and we're going to present it as this thing over here. It's, a, it's totally what's going on. I mean, men's hearts have not changed. Unrestrained. Romans talks about that. It talks about that they invent new ways to do evil. And that's, that's exactly what's going on here. Demetrius, he's pouring it on very thickly with these people. He claims that the reputation is, as well as the great goddess Diana's reputation, they're on the line. And not only in Asia, but the whole world, he says. 
<laughs> it's interesting how his statement lines up with the same area where they're losing business. So I really believe that in reality, these guys cared little about Diana worship. I don't think that they cared a lot about the temple and the, all the stuff that was associated with it. This was getting into their pocketbooks. Verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed to the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. We'll see more of these two guys in chapter 20. Don't have time to go into them today. Uh, So this is the second time in the book of Acts that we've seen the threat of violence uh, by a group of Gentile men whose business had been disrupted and disturbed because the gospel was going out. Remember back in chapter 16 in Philippi, uh, on his second journey, Paul, he, <laughs> this slave girl was following him around uh, chanting, and she did that for days. I don't know how Paul had said that he got really, he, he, he kind of lost his temper with her at one point. And he turns around, he casts this demonic spirit out of this girl. Uh, and she was employed by a group of men who until then were profiting from her fortune telling. All of a sudden their business was gone. All of a sudden their profits were gone. As a result, they haul Paul and Silas uh, before the magistrates of the city and they set them up on false charges. The, the, the magistrates don't even check it out. They, they did later and they ended up feeling very badly about that. And don't need to reteach it, but uh, they end up having these guys beaten with rods. Remember, we talked about the lictors and um, the, the fascia rods that they used back then. Had them thrown into prison, all because they messed with their business, all because they got uh, in between them and their bottom line. So what's going on here in Ephesus, these guys, they rush into the theater, uh, is a mob mentality is beginning to take hold. These men incite a riot. They get everybody stirred up. And the mob quickly grows, moves to the large amphitheater in the city. Now this fifth slide that I have, this is an aerial view of the ruins of the huge amphitheater in Ephesus. That's what it looks like today. And this is the only place, by the way, in the the city that this could have taken place. So this is the spot where the people went to. Now, this amphitheater, estimates vary that it, it, was, it was huge. It, it could hold anywhere between 25 and some say over 50,000 people. That was a big facility. Verse 13, when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Uh, so I think it's interesting here. Paul's like, let me out. Of, I, I'm going in. I, I don't care. I mean, this is the same guy that got drug. I remember they drug him out of, what was it, Lystra? And, and they left him for dead. He gets up, kind of brushes himself off, and he marches right back into the city. So he's no stranger to danger. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. But he isn't. I mean, this is something that he is accustomed to. He knows, and he has counted the cost. And so he's saying, let me add it. Let me get, I'm going to get in there. But he allows himself to be held back at this point because he, he, was, he was brave, but he wasn't a fool. This is a big mob. And he sees that it's getting out of hand. And we'll see in chapter 20, uh, and one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Acts, 
when he exhorts the Ephesian elders there at Miletus, which is a, a seaport south of Ephesus, on his way back uh, on this journey, uh, on his way back to Jerusalem, uh, that he was well aware of the risks uh, and that they were risks that were directly related to his serving Christ. And he weighed everything in light of his calling. In Acts twenty twenty four, we read, but none of these things move me. He's been talking about all of the troubles he's had. He says, these things don't move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is just a beautiful statement. I would love to say that that was something that I live out in my life, and I want more of that, that kind of boldness. Folks, it's not easy at times serving the Lord. It's not easy standing up to an unbelieving family. It's not easy going into situations where you know that people are going to be antagonistic. Fortunately, we live in a country where at least until now, we were not met with violence, but that's increasing. It's increasing all the time. And so there is a cost. Paul counted the cost and he said, you know what? I don't care. Uh, God's hand is upon my life and I am going to go and I'm going to do what he's called me to do. And you know what? I don't want to count my life as dear to myself. I don't want to value my life, my hide above what God has called me to. Verse 31, and some of the officials of Asia, uh, the the Greek word there is Asiarchs. (laughs) They were provincial officials. Uh, they were his friends. They sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So the sixth slide I have here, it's a view from the floor of the theater where the crowd was congregating, no doubt. And when Paul wanted to go in, he probably would have had to enter that way because it's, it's built into a hill. So uh, evidently these local guys, these, these provincial officials, the Asiarchs, uh, they had either come to Christ, they'd come to know Christ through Paul's ministry, or they had, had at least become friends of his. Uh, and they said, don't go, don't do it. They saw how hostile things were getting. And they knew that if Paul went in, he would be in grave danger. These guys were starting to, and, and when you see that whole mob mentality kick in, uh, it was getting worse. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. (laughs) I, you know, every time I read this, I've been reading this for years and years. And every time I read it, I think that is so like people. (laughs) It is so like the human condition. It is so like human nature. Yeah, we're mad. We're really upset. What are we upset about? I don't know, but I'm upset. You know, and it's just, it's kind of crazy. But what Luke is describing here is a typical pack mentality. That's what happens. That's what happens. We've seen it a lot in the last few years in our culture. We've seen it just this last week. If you've watched the news or looked at the news in Chicago, things are going crazy there. In Los Angeles, I was looking at a mini mart that a group of people went in there and it's like this grand opening or something. And they just stripped the place bare because this pack mentality kicks in. <laughs> so 
uh, as the silversmiths, the craftsmen, initially stirred up the crowd, the group dynamics shifted to a mob mentality. And that's where it became dangerous. Uh, this is just so familiar to, and I remember waking up after the whole George Floyd thing and seeing the riots in all these different cities and thinking, my goodness, what has taken place? Because you didn't see that. I mean, I saw it like back when I was a kid during the Vietnam War, but I mean, it was just so foreign. And unfortunately, it's become more commonplace. I was looking at businesses that are closing in downtown Portland because it's just too dangerous. New businesses won't go in because they can't even get insurance underwriters to underwrite insurance policies for them to have a business there. Why? Because they're just going to be paying out claims. It's getting out of hand. And a lot of that is driven by a mob mentality. And that's what we're seeing here in Ephesus. Verse 32, some therefore, or they, yeah, I talked about that. They cried one thing and another. They didn't know why they had come together. Verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. So I just think this is sort of a, Alexander, he's going to cover the Jews behinds on this. In the middle of all this mayhem, a group of the Jews, they decided they need to make it clear. We're not in cahoots with these itinerant missionary guys. We, we, we're not part of them. You know, please be nice to us, kind of a thing. And so Alexander steps forward as their spokesman, uh, and he motions to the crowd to quiet them down, as he's got some things to say. <laughs> he wouldn't get a chance to do that. Their plan would backfire uh, verse 34, when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So we don't know what the, crowd, what the crowd's response was directed, who that was directed at. Was it directed at the Jews because they were anti-Semitic? Anti-Semitism was a thing then as it is now in some circles. Or if it was directed at the Christians, it doesn't, doesn't tell us. Regardless, this theater, I mean, it's built to have excellent acoustics. You've got a gigantic crowd in the theater, and for two hours, these guys cry out, great is Diana of the the Ephesians. And it would have been an amazing, I think, chilling thing. Standing outside, you'd hear this whole thing going on for two hours. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus... What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? That's that weird meteorite thing. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So, and I I just think, you know, the city official, the city clerk, first of all, he is the most powerful man in the city, uh, just in the way that they structured Roman government. Uh, the city clerk, he wasn't like the clerk these days, which is kind of in a back office at the county building. No, this guy, you know, he's an important dude. He steps up, he probably has a robe on, I don't know. Uh, and he's also, he's a shrewd politician as well, because he begins by identifying with the people, saying, oh yeah, yeah, he speaks fondly of <laughs> this favorite image of Diana, he speaks fondly that... that uh, this about the temple and about this thing that the silversmiths had been manufacturing. 
Uh, and he also is one, he's sort of a voice of reason, even though he's not a voice of reason for truth, but he is a voice of reason in a very, very frenetic, hectic situation. Verse 37, for, he says, he continues, he says, for you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. So he calms the crowd and he lets them know there are proper legal channels available to you. Uh, but he also knows that they don't have anything on these guys. He knows that this is a, this is not a good situation. He continues on verse 39. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly for we are in danger. And here's what he's getting at. This is why he steps forward. <laughs> he's, he's not just trying to calm the crowd down. His hide is kind of on the line here. He says, we're in danger of being called into question for today's effort. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. So you got to understand the Roman Empire. I've mentioned before, the Romans solved problems with big, broad swords. (laughs) That's what they did. They held an iron grip on the, the provinces. They governed fiercely. And they did not, they had a very dim view of disorderly riots. A riot breaks out. They were going to take care of it. Now, the city clerk, he knew that his job, probably his life, remember when we looked at Philippi, those guys realized when they had had Paul and Silas beaten, thrown into jail, they came back and they said, pretty please, will you leave? And Paul said, no, we're not leaving until we get a chance to talk with you publicly. And they did. They, Paul understood that this guy was, he was in hot water because if it got back to the, the uh, people in charge, that it would cost him his life because they were doing this to Roman citizens. Well, this city clerk, he understands that his job is on the line. His life very likely was on the line. If word got back to Rome, uh, that they were called to account for this mob, for this thing that's going on. So in verse 41, it says, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. He said, go home. Before this thing gets any more out of hand, just get out of here. And it's interesting to me because the people go, okay, and they leave. And then the whole thing disperses. And that's the end of that. And I think that it's interesting because behind the scenes, God's hand is at work and he is protecting the disciples. He's protecting Paul and he's protecting the work that's been going on. So... As we look at this, and I know that we sprinted through the last 20 verses of this chapter, but I want to take some things by way of application away from what we're looking at here this morning. And I've got three things. The first <laughs> is what I've called just when things were going so well. <laughs> Paul's ministry was seeing a greater degree of success in Ephesus than it had in any other place during all of his previous missionary journeys and all of his stops, Ephesus was the place. Ephesus was where the gospel had taken hold and not just taken hold, but as I mentioned, it exploded. And 
And so he's got this huge work going on, teaching every day in the school of Tyrannus, sending people out, going off to all the different parts of Asia. And, and I mean, this is a thing. This was going on. It was hugely successful. So my question is, is it any wonder that the sheer magnitude of the pushback that they're now faced with was so strong just when things were going so well? Folks, there's a lesson in that for us. I'm convinced that these events were a catalyst uh, to what Paul would later write back to the Ephesian church when he says he gives them great instruction uh, with regard to doing battle in the spiritual realm. This isn't just an accident. This isn't just things that we see. There are things that are unseen that are going on here. On the surface, it appears that the origin of their troubles was a bunch of grumpy silversmiths. <laughs> I mean, that's what we see started it. They saw their prophets circling the drain. It's like, oh no, we got to do something. In reality, what's really going on here, when the Spirit of God moves mightily upon the hearts of men, we shouldn't be surprised that the God of this world sets himself against it. And that's true. Very often, through the evil schemes of godless men. Look around. Things are a mess out there. Evil schemes of godless men are, are they're happening so fast it's hard to keep track of. And yet we have to remember it's not just evil schemes as an end to themselves. That brings me to my second point. Therefore, all of that considered, elevate your perspective. Elevate your perspective. We're told in 1 Corinthians, and and I like to go to this passage frequently, is that we have the ability to see both sides. We see into the temporal, the things that are seen, and we see into the spiritual, the things that are unseen. And Paul says, you have the ability to appraise all things. The person in the world, all they see, all they appraise is what they can see. But you have a great advantage. You have a great benefit by having the Holy Spirit living, dwelling within you, that you get to see both sides. Connect them. Connect what's going on. The seen and the unseen. Because it's not just conservative and liberal. It's not just Republican and Democrat. It's not just traditional and progressive. It's what is seen and what is unseen. Very clear with what we see with this riot in Ephesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us. That's key. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. Verse 3, he says, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. You see, he connects the two. The seen, unreasonable and wicked men, and the unseen, the evil one, being guarded from the evil one. Folks, we've got to elevate our perspective to where we see both. When you look, when your worldview should be shaped by the word of God, and as your worldview is shaped by the word of God, you interpret what's going on through the lens of God's word. As you interpret what's going on through the lens of God's word, it makes more sense than it ever will to anybody that's just in the world. So elevate your perspective. The enemy would distract us by getting our focus solely on the effects of evil. 
rather than us being of a mind to armor up and do battle against the cause. Pray. Finally, the third thing here is keep the main thing, the main thing. Very, very important. A lot of distractions out there, a lot of noise. Have you thought about how much noise there is out there? Oh my goodness. Uh, Again, I I could just take off on that, but I'm not going to. Here's the point. Paul didn't have to preach against Diana. That wasn't what he was in Ephesus for. He preached for Christ. That was his mission. Interesting, the supply of idols didn't dry up. (laughs) It didn't. But the demand sure did as people responded to the gospel. Turn to Jesus. Here's the principle. My responsibility as a Christian is not to go about proving everybody wrong. I think sometimes we get hung up on that. My responsibility is to prove Jesus right. Out of that, out of that, People, as they grab hold by faith, lives are transformed. Hearts are changed. So how do I do that, pastor? By holding up the word of God. Period. End of story. It's not complicated. Let me give you an example. I did jail ministry for a period of time and uh, with uh, another pastor and I. We would go in every week and we would take turns. We would tag team. He would uh, preach one week and I would sit and pray, and, and then I would preach the next week, and he would sit and just kind of lean against a wall and pray, and, and the, the guards would take us and about 50 or 60 inmates into this room and then lock the door behind them. No guards. Yeah, it was an interesting ministry. <laughs> Nor do I count my life dear to myself. <laughs> At any rate, so I'm at the jail. And I'm there, and, and I, would get to, I would get to know these guys that would come week after week. And, but there were, there were people from all different, different areas where I, I, I was ministering to people who had multiple murders on them. I, was, I, I remember ministering to some guys that they were doing time because they had been caught poaching, and that was a big deal. It's a big deal here. It was a big deal in California. You did prison time if you were poaching outside of hunting season. I remember doing, uh, ministering to a guy that uh, he wanted to go to every Raiders game. And so every time there was, he'd rob a bank. I was like, oh, that's dedication. <laughs> I'm serious. And then I would minister to petty thieves. See, my job going to the jail it was not, I, it wasn't for me to convince each man that the crime that they had committed that got them there was wrong. My job was to tell them, you don't have to live this way because let me tell you who's right. Let me point to the one who loves you that loves you so much that he went to the cross. Let me tell you about the one who understands that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I would, I would ask those guys, I, it was interesting. I would frequently, I would say, okay, if you didn't know that what you did that landed your rear end in here was wrong, I want you to raise your hand. I never had one guy in all the time I was doing that. I never had one guy raise his hand. But see, it's not about going out and trying to prove the world wrong. It's about trying to prove, it's about taking the responsibility to prove Christ as sufficient to prove Christ as being the answer. When I was a, a teenager, 
Uh, I emancipated uh, as a young, as a teenager, uh, moved away from home. I grew up uh, in the Los Angeles area and uh, moved to Washington State, got my own place, three part-time jobs, and put myself back into high school. And, and I got a job, I remember I got a job working at Penny's at Tacoma Mall. And uh, it was the holidays, and uh, it was extra help. And every time I would drive down the freeway in my old 59 Chevy, I'd be driving from Fife, where I lived, which is just north of Tacoma, uh, down I-5, and there was this huge neon sign. And I would drive past this every time I went to work. Now, at that time, I was a backslidden Mormon, <laughs> because I grew up in the LDS church. But uh, I would look at this sign, and on this sign is these big, huge neon letters that said, Christ is the answer. And, and I remember thinking over and over, I would drive past that sign and I'd, and I'd think, okay, that's cool. But he's the answer to what? And it wasn't until years later where I began to realize that, guess what? Christ is the answer. Like I said, we need to, first of all, understand that when things are going well, just give it a little bit of time. As we deal with those things, we need to elevate our perspective. Understand that there are things going on in the seen world. Connect them to what's going on in the unseen. Finally, in your own life, keep the main thing the main thing. Give people the love of Jesus. There's a lot of people out there hurting. Talking to my son this last week, and I'll wrap up with this. And he said, Dad, we're seeing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's uh, involved in Calvary Chapel. He's been at since he was eight. He's turned 45 this week. Uh, He said, Dad, we're seeing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And and God is just stirring hearts because there is so much garbage out there that that people really are starting to turn because there's no answers to the stuff that's going on. And I said, it just blesses me to hear that, son. And, you know, they're going to increasing the amount of services they have and all that. But essentially it's because, and I was at that little church for about 20 years, and from the time that they were birthed, and it's our mission here as well, we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul got to Corinth. He said, I've determined to know nothing, nothing among you, except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. So Father, as we, uh, as we, race through this passage in the book of Acts, look at the, the riot there in Ephesus, look at the effect that it was having uh, on people's lives and, and the, the things that were happening in the seen realm and the unseen realm. Lord, I pray that for myself and for each person here, each person within the sound of my voice, whether it's online or looking at our archives later or whatever, that you would bring great encouragement It's tough out there, Father, and yet we know that we serve a good and a powerful and a loving God, that our lives are hidden in your hands and literally nothing can befall us that's outside of your control. So I pray, Father, grant us boldness as we go out this week. Give us the love of Christ that it would be shed abroad in our hearts as we interact with others, especially those that don't know you. Pray, Father, that you would use us Fill us up, Father. Give us the fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that we can carry out the work that you set before us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.